We've had a small break here on the Bio Audio podcast. I've been in the field in Peru, my first trip to South America, learning about the local ecology and meeting some wonderful new collaborators. But today the Bio Audio podcast returns, and we're going to talk about species interactions, the things that actually make ecosystems function. Would you care to introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Professor Gordon Fitch, um, assistant professor at York in Biology. Um, and my research actually focuses on species interactions, particularly those between plants and pollinators, uh, especially bees, and the disease organisms of bees, and thinking about how those are shaped by global change, particularly urbanization and agriculture. What do we mean then when we talk about species interactions? Because that's sort of, I said what the topic is, but what is an interaction? Is it something casual or is it something that's quite sustained in nature? Yes. Yeah, so usually we're talking about uh, direct interactions where one individual is having some influence on another individual of a different species. Um, so I guess it's not so casual, like we wouldn't consider an interaction to be a squirrel wandering past an oak tree. We really think of it as something that isn't necessarily sustained over time, although it can be, uh, but at least where one species is having an impact on the uh, fitness or existence of another. And I think today we'll mostly be talking about interactions between species, which we call what we call interspecific interactions. Right, of course, because there's also interactions within species, for instance, competition for access to females or competitions between individuals for resources within a species. But I agree, we're, we're probably talking more about how two different species interact. How do we classify interactions in nature? So there are a few different ways we can do it, but the one that's most commonly used by ecologists is based on uh, what sort of impact the interaction has on the species involved. And so we can think of that impact as being negative or neutral or positive. That is, we can have cases where both species are harmed by the interaction, where one benefits and the other is harmed, or where both benefit. And then there are some cases where there's no effect, that interaction is neutral. And based on these different impacts for the uh, two species involved, we classify these different types of interactions and they have different special names that we use. So we can talk about competition or predation parasitism, uh, mutualism, commensalism, and so on. Okay, so let's let's take competition as an example, because I think the idea of two things competing for something is easy to sort of comprehend. How do you classify a competitive interaction? So competition is generally uh, what we think of as a negative-negative interaction. Both species involved, both individuals involved, are having some sort of negative effect on one another. And often competition occurs when two species are both trying to use the same resource, and that resource is limited. No, so, so the fitness of both is going to be reduced. If we think about this as an evolutionary context, then if you're wasting energy competing, you can't shunt that energy somewhere else. Exactly right. So energy that might go towards survival or reproduction instead is expended on this competition for the resource. And so that resource could be all sorts of things, right? We could imagine that uh, it's two species of insect that both consume the same plant as a larva um, or two predators that consume the same prey species. But it could also be abiotic resources. 
Um, or it could be something like space. Like if you are a tree that needs to grow in a sunny spot in the forest, um, you can compete for who gets to grow in that sunny spot. And this is then sort of, I guess what we call their niche, that there's this ecological set of variables that can support something. And there's this sort of idea that two things probably can't occupy the same exact niche because that competition becomes really strong. Um, what happens if competition does become too strong? What's going to happen to those two things that are having these negative, negative interactions? Yeah, so in that case, we could actually see one species completely exclude the other. It's what we call the competitive exclusion principle. And it's the idea that when two species share the same niche or niche, then only one of them can survive. And the one that does survive is what we consider the superior competitor. In that case, um, the stronger competitor wins and its population will increase, while the weaker population will either have to move or actually go locally extinct. And if two things are in continuous competition, what might the evolutionary outcome of that be? If they're not going to go extinct, but they keep competing, yeah, so often we can see uh, morphological or behavioral changes in one or both species where over time they shift their niche so that they are more separated and are therefore able to coexist. And this idea is called character displacement. So one really classic example of it is the Darwin's finches, which are these birds that live on these remote islands, uh, the Galapagos Islands off of South America. And we have all of these species that have different bill sizes that are specialized to allow them to consume seeds of different sizes. But it's thought that they actually evolved from one species initially that all that was had a broader niche space and consumed seeds of more diverse sizes. So you might end up with the two competitive species becoming slightly more specialized to avoid competition because of the fitness cost of continuously competing for a resource. Yeah, exactly. Okay, how about the other end of the spectrum, the the positive positive interactions? And I think these are the ones that you work more on as a research area. Yeah, these are it's true. These are my favorite interactions. Uh, so we call those positive positive interactions uh, generally mutualisms. Uh, and so in this case, both parties to the interaction are benefiting, uh, meaning that there's some increase in their evolutionary fitness that occurs because of this interaction. Often that's because it actually increases the organism's reproductive output. Again, there are lots of different kinds of mutualisms. I think the one that we think of most often is pollination, where animals are helping plants reproduce and then also getting some food. But we also have things like seed dispersal, where animals are moving seeds around for plants and other nutritional mutualisms between, say, plants and fungi. So for a little bit more context, I'll talk a, a bit about the interaction that I focus on between bees and plants. Um, and so in this case, bees are getting benefit from going to flower because they consume pollen and nectar. They get carbohydrates from the nectar and protein and lipids from the pollen. And so they're all going about their merry way, having a feast on the flowers. But in the meantime, they're actually moving pollen from one flower to another. And that pollen contains the male gametes of the flower. And so when, it, when those move to another flower and get deposited on the receptive female part of that flower, they can fertilize and allow that flower to reproduce. So this ends up having benefits for the plant as well as the 
pollinator. So the bee gets food, the plant gets increased genetic variability by moving pollen around rather than just selfing or something like that. Precisely. And many plants actually aren't even capable of self-pollinating, so they need the animals to have any hope of reproducing at all. So that's competition, where both interacting organisms are harmed, and mutualism, where both benefit. What about in the middle? What cases do we have where it's not so obvious that there's the same kind of reaction going on in all the players? So in the middle, uh, we have lots of cases where one organism benefits and then the other uh, has some sort of negative effect. Fitness is reduced. So the most obvious case here is predation. You have a carnivore, say a coyote, that goes out and catches a prey item, say a rabbit. The calories from that rabbit are going to help that coyote to reproduce, therefore increasing its fitness. Um, on the other hand, that rabbit just lost all hope of reproducing and therefore fitness went down dramatically. But it doesn't have to be as extreme as a coyote eating a rabbit. Um, we can see these positive-negative interactions that are sublethal for the species that has the negative outcome. A classic example of that is parasites. Parasite is an organism that consumes resources directly from a host, but it doesn't cause the host to die. So you can imagine a mosquito sucking your blood or many disease agents infecting their host. They cause the, the host organism to mount some sort of immune response or protective response, say spotting the mosquito and the energy expended there, as well as the energy lost from the actual extraction of blood or what have you, has some cost to the host organism, but at least in the short term, isn't going to kill it. And at the same, by the same token, it benefits the parasite because the parasite is extracting resources from the host. So is it fair to say then that some of these interactions can be very asymmetrical, where one has a huge benefit or cost and the other one probably doesn't have much benefit or cost or a minimal one. You can have different degrees of fitness consequences to both parties. That is certainly true. Yeah. And to the point where you can actually have an interaction where there's no effect on one of the interacting individuals. So you might have one species benefiting one individual benefiting, and the other one might not even notice. This is what we call commensalism. And it's sometimes harder to imagine these than predator-prey interactions. But one example might be something like a bird building a nest in a tree. So in this case, the bird gets shelter and a place to raise young, which is massively beneficial to that bird. Without the tree, it wouldn't have a place to, to build a nest and wouldn't be able to reproduce. Um, but that nest probably has very minimal impact on the fitness of the tree. And it's not just large organisms like birds and trees where this happens. Um, we see a lot of commensal relationships between microbes and hosts. So many of the, the microbes that live on our skin, for example, they get home, but we aren't even aware that they're there. And they probably have very minimal impact on our fitness, whether they're there or not. One of my favorite examples is is frequently misclassified. And it comes up a lot in textbooks or Google as a case of, of commensalism, which the more we look, the more the data suggests it probably isn't a commensal relationship. Can you tell us just briefly about oxpeckers? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great example. Um, so oxpeckers are these um, birds that 
you can find riding around on large mammals in the African savannas. They're there because they're feeding on mites and flies that are associated with these mammals. Um, and so for a long time, it was thought that this was an example of commensalism because the birds are just picking off insects in the wake of these large mammals and not particularly having an impact on the large mammals. Or in fact, it could have even been out of as uh, mutualism because people have pointed out that, oh, well, maybe the mammals benefit from having these insects and other arthropods removed from their bodies. But actually, it turns out that these birds are probably doing a fair bit of harm to these uh, mammals because they're, in fact, pecking the ox, not just picking off the arthropods and uh, have been observed to open up skin of the mammals and drink their blood. So we have some vampire birds out on the African savanna, and this could have a negative fitness effect on uh, the mammals involved. And so it's a really good example of how more data can change our opinion of these infection classifications um, beyond what we might see at first glance. I've seen ox pickers in the African savannas and they're not commensal. We might consider them to be <laughs> uh, vampires. <laughs> drawing blood. So how do scientists really measure these? And what do you do with this kind of data? Why do you study you know, mutualistic interactions? What is the interest in this? Yeah, so it's there are all sorts of ways to measure these interactions, um, from going out in the field and observing organisms to doing things more like uh, what you do, looking DNA in the air and, and potentially inferring interactions from, from those patterns. And as to the question of what we do with the information about which species are interact, interacting, there's really, again, sort of a host of reasons why this is important, particularly if we're thinking about the long-term sustainability of species or ecosystems. Uh, one thing that we think about a lot when we're talking about interactions in biotic communities is the structure of that ecological community. Just in the last couple of decades, we really revolutionized the way we think about these interactions. So we're no longer thinking about like one species interacting with another in isolation. We, re we appreciate now that species are constantly interacting with many other species and that this is really a network of interactions and that that network can really sustain and support all of the species that are living in the community. So just a couple examples of how we might use these networks of interaction. So we can classify species as whether they're specialists or generalists based on the way that they're connected to other species in the network. So a specialist is one that really only interacts with a small number of other species. In the most extreme case, maybe only one other species. And in that case, it tends to not be very connected in the network. And so you might imagine it would be really vulnerable to the few species that it interacts with dropping out of the network. But on the other hand, it dropping out of the network might not have as much of an impact on the broader community. By contrast, generalists are species that are highly connected and interact with many other species and tend to have a disproportionate impact on the overall structure and function of the community. So is this a way of almost ranking the risks of extinction losses within ecosystems by looking at how vulnerable something might be to the loss of a single other species, or on the contrary, looking at 
a generalist that has a huge variety of potential functions and it having a disproportionate effect of that particular species is lost. Yeah, that's certainly one really useful approach to thinking about species interactions and one way to the species interactions and understanding them can help us have a better appreciation for the function of ecosystems and communities. Is it at all sort of similar to the way if we look at something like social media, somebody like Taylor Swift, you know, is going to have a huge influence from a single tweet on X, whereas somebody else doesn't just because the number of connections that are made. It sounds like a very similar way of thinking about influencers and uh, people with an unexpectedly large influence, given the relative proportion of people out there on these networks. That's exactly right. Yeah, social networks are very analogous to ecological networks to the point that, you know, there's a fair number of researchers who jump between the two fields and many of the tools that people use to think about social networks are also used in ecology to think about the way that species are interacting. So we have influencers in ecology the same way we have them on social media. Very much so. So how do we talk about ecosystems then? Do you talk about, when if you're trying to describe an ecological system, do we talk about inventories? Do we talk about interactions? Do we talk about functions? What's the best way to try and characterize an actual ecosystem? Well, best, that's a tough one. I think we really, ideally the best way is to consider all of those. So certainly it's helpful to know what species are there, inventory those. But as we've talked about already, it's really important to go beyond just who's there and think about what they're doing, who they're interacting with. And then sort of from that understanding, we can then start thinking about what function those organisms are playing in the community and how what sort of ecosystem services they might be providing through their presence. But obviously, this is not easy to do. So, you know, an inventory maybe of big mammals in a, in a park, you can do relatively easily, but an inventory of microbes, even living on a single organism is quite challenging, much less thinking about all of the ways that those microbes are interacting with one another. So I think there's sacrifices that we often make as ecologists in deciding how we're going to measure things based on what specific question we're trying to address and also the feasibility of of what we can measure based on the tools that we have. So are there evolutionary consequences of interactions that go beyond this sort of vague plus minus type assessment. I mean, it's nice to be able to categorize something as a mutualistic interaction or a competitive interaction, but what are the evolutionary consequences of this? Oh, well, they're massive. Um, I mean, if by way of example, there's very strong evidence that the diversity of flowering plants that we have on Earth today is driven by interactions with pollinating insects. So we see many cases where interactions have driven diversification. Looking sort of at a a finer scale, we can also see if species are closely interacting with one another through over long periods of time, we often see what's called co-evolution, where these interactions are closely tied together to the point where we start seeing reciprocal influences of one species on the other and vice versa at the genetic level, and then also scaling up to um, their traits and behavior. We see examples of this in predatory interactions. So often the item will say, try to develop some toxin or other defense 
to get around being eaten, then the predator will develop a way of, of coping with that toxin, detoxifying it, potentially even integrating the toxin into its own tissues. And that will then render the prey once again vulnerable. And so it will evolve again in what what's known as an evolutionary arms race, racing one another to stay in the same place. But there's also really cool examples of coevolution in mutualistic interactions. I think my favorite is this example of an orchid in Madagascar that was discovered back in the 1800s. And it has this massively long nectar spur. So the nectar sits way down at the bottom of this incredibly long tube, like a meter long or something like that. And at the time, people were like, why would this orchid have this outrageously long nectar spur? Um, and Charles Darwin predicted that it was because there was some hawk moth out there that had a particularly long tongue that had evolved to pollinate this specific plant grew in remote areas in Madagascar. And so people weren't actually able to go out and see what was happening with it for about 100 years. But it turns out, in I think it was just in the 1970s or so, that they learned, they went out, observed this orchid, and indeed found this hawk moth that had the longest tongue of any moth in the world pollinating this orchid. So a really cool example of coevolution of in mutualism. That's great because it sounds also then like the morphology of the plant allowed a prediction of looking for a species with a particular characteristic that was then actually found, even though it took a long time, the morphology predicted the interaction. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in my own field, so I was a bat biologist, we, our classic example is the predatory example, where the echolocation ability of bats um, has exerted a, a selective force on flying nocturnal insect prey, like moths, to develop ear cells that are particularly tuned to the echolocation frequencies of bats. And as bats evolve better and better echolocation abilities, moths seem to have developed better and more sensitive acoustic detection abilities to the point where they even have different responses based on the different kinds of echolocation they perceive. And this is also considered another arms race, but now in the competitive side where you've got a predator and the prey and this arms race of developing better and better acoustic abilities and better and better detection uh, hearing abilities in the system. It's neat. Yeah, very cool. For you, I, I think, I don't know if you know this, that there's a bat that does the same thing your hawk moth does. Oh, yeah? It's got a super long tongue that actually rolls up inside its chest cavity. And it can <laughs> actually effectively cough up this tongue to get access to a nectar reward that's very, very long deep inside a, a, a nectar tube in a flower. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I hadn't yeah. heard that. <laughs> it's the bat equivalent of a hawk moth. Yeah. So uh, the, the last question I'm going to ask you, because we've talked a little bit about the fact that you study some of these things, is what is your own career path? Did you intend to become a specialist in uh, pollination, ecology, interactions, and a university professor, or have you come by a different route? Definitely, it was not my intention right off the bat. Um, I've had a sort of winding path to get here. Um, so I you know, was always loved animals and plants and um, spent a lot of time outdoors as a child, but never really thought that it could be a career path to 
study and think about these organisms. I went to university, sadly, sort of didn't really understand what research was or how to be involved in it. And so graduated from, from university and decided to go into teaching. And so I worked for a number of years as a teacher in, in sort of different capacities. Um, so I taught high school science and I worked as an environmental educator. And then I sort of was jolted out of that path by random opportunity that I had to go to help out on a research project in Colombia one of the summers during my teaching years. My school had a lot of Colombian students, and so it seemed like a sort of cool opportunity to create some curriculum that would be relevant to where my students were coming from. And it was a project studying this rare bird, uh, the blue-billed curacao. And so I spent a couple months wandering in the rainforest in Colombia looking for this bird that I actually only saw twice the entire time I was there, but I got really hooked on uh, research. Um, and so went back and taught for another year and applied for grad school and then was, was admitted to the University of Michigan and um, went thinking that I was going to study birds because that was what had made me fall in love with research. But then realized that bees also fly and are, I mean, I still love birds, but I think bees are just so important for their role in pollination. Um, and I think interactions between bees and plants are so fascinating. Um, and so that really took me to where I am today. Thank you to Professor Gordon Fitch for joining us today on the Bio Audio Podcast to discuss species interactions in an evolutionary context. This has been a presentation of the Bio Audio Podcast. I started Bio Audio as a live Q&A session with the class when they had questions that were outside my area of expertise. Over the course of a few years, live sessions became some recorded sessions, and then a hosted interview, and then some audio files for the class. At the request of some of my students, I made them public as a podcast so they could more easily listen on their phones. I was not prepared for how enthusiastic the class was, and a few episodes soon became a dozen, and then enough to provide a free alternative to traditional textbook readings. The goal is to learn through interviewing experts and former students, and to make an alternative, free, and more inclusive resource. We are not perfect, but we're learning as we go. If you have enjoyed this episode, particularly if you are a student, leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on X at Dr. Underscore Bat Underscore Girl, on Mastodon at Prof Batgirl at ecoevo.social or blue sky at profbatgirl.bsky.social where I post new episodes and new news from my research lab. I hope you've enjoyed this presentation of the bio audio podcast.